by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Environmental, social, and governance issues have come to the forefront in many sectors in recent years, including the world of structured finance. However, ESG factors pose higher credit risk to certain structured finance asset classes and regions than in others. Meanwhile, CLOs, particularly those in Europe, have been among the most aggressive transactions when it comes to adopting ESG-focused investment criteria. I'm Aaron Johnson, and this is Moody's Talks Securitization Spotlight. In today's episode, my co-hosts, Tungi, Hespel, and I will be joined by Peter McNally and Lana DeHarving of our Structured Finance Group in New York. We'll talk with Peter about the extent to which various structured finance asset classes globally are susceptible to climate change and other ESG-related risks. And then we'll bring on Lana to discuss how CLOs are increasingly adopting ESG-related investment restrictions. Tongi, this is your first time hosting, so why don't you get us started? Thanks, Aaron. Peter, you wrote about how environmental and social risks largely reflect the spectrum of transaction types and assets, while governance considerations are generally issuer-specific. Can you tell us more about the different risks these factors pose in structured finance? Sure, Tangi. Thanks for having me. Environmental risks include the direct effects of environmental hazards as well as regulatory or policy initiatives that seek to reduce or prevent the effects of those actual or perceived hazards. Social risks address the transactions interactions with or dependencies on employees, customers, supply chain partners, counterparties, and society at large. Governance relates to the framework and processes through which decisions are made and related actions are carried out. For structured finance transactions, key governance considerations are alignments of interests, asset quality and amendment controls, and transaction parties' adherence to the documentation. Can you quantify a bit how big these risks actually loom in the structured finance world? Asset classes are more likely to face moderate social risk than moderate environmental risk, given that social risks represent a broader range of considerations. Meanwhile, governance considerations, as Tongi mentioned, are generally issuer-specific, so they don't lend themselves to sector-level analysis. To give you an idea of the extent of those risks, there's approximately $4 trillion of outstanding structured finance debt that we rate, and about two-thirds of it is in sectors with moderate social and low environmental risk. Those are led by covered bonds, which themselves account for about 40% of global structured finance debt outstanding. Uh, let's talk about some specific asset classes. Uh, maybe start with those most subject to environmental risks. Well, environmental risks are low for most asset classes, but moderate for three specific types of transactions that we rate all of which are somewhat esoteric and issued out of the U.S. Those are aircraft ABS, tobacco ABS, and project finance and infrastructure CDOs. And I'll make clear that when we say low, moderate, or high, um, these are terms Moody's uses to define these risks and not an industry standard scale. That's right. And the most common environmental risks to structured finance collateral are emission standards and other environmental rules that put asset values at risk, as well as severe weather resulting from climate change that can damage assets and lead to disrupted collections that weaken transaction performance. Okay, so to sum up, we could classify those risks as those that relate to carbon transition and those that relate to actual physical damage from climate-related weather events, right? Yes. So among carbon transition risks, for example, 
aircraft and auto ABS, European RMBS, and CMBS are exposed to evolving technology or emissions regulations. And among physical climate risks, severe weather that causes damage to homes or property can lead to financial hardship for borrowers in consumer ABS transactions, as well as declines in values of assets backing auto ABS, RMBS, and CMBS. And what about social risks? Sure. The two main factors driving social risk in structured finance transactions are demographic and societal trends and customer relations. Demographic and societal trends reflect the effects of external social trends, while customer relations addresses how a transaction counterparty's interactions with its customers can lead to lost business and increased costs. So what sectors are we looking at in this case? Student loan ABS, particularly as it relates to Federal Family Education Loan Program, or FELP, transactions that have the highest exposure to payment plans and direct government control, that's the only structured finance sector with high overall social risk. FELP student loan ABS are exposed to high customer relations risk because FELP servicing policies are prescribed by the U.S. government and therefore directly subject to policymakers' goals. But customer relations factors are also present in other asset classes as well, such as U.S. personal loan EBS, where it stems from risk around product disclosures, high interest rates, and new lenders' business models. And how about from a demographic and societal trend perspective? Trends and preferences that drive demand for space in both commercial and residential buildings affect building owners. Thus, the credit risk of commercial real estate backing CMBS and some mortgage-covered bonds In another example, shifting consumer preferences for smoking reduces the revenue available to repay tobacco ABS. Societal trends could also be a benefit, though, for example, in wireless tower ABS, which reflects growing data consumption as the use of mobile devices and adoption of the Internet of Things rises. Now, whereas environmental and social issues generally affect entire asset classes, governance risks are largely issuer-specific. They speak to the strengths of controls on asset quality, on amendment laid out in the transaction documentation, and of course, to the adherence of the transaction parties to the documents. Yeah. For one, legal arrangements that provide for bankruptcy remoteness are key governance considerations for structured finance transactions. And the strength of key transaction parties, such as the originator, manager, servicer, and trustee, can influence cash flow or transaction credit quality. For example, a financially weak sponsor and servicer is more likely to lose its ability to effectively service the assets. But in many cases, transactions have backup servicers to partially mitigate this risk. And similarly, CLO typically have provisions to ensure an orderly replacement of the collateral manager or assignment of its duties. That's right. Well, thanks for joining, Peter, and appreciate the segue to our next segment, where we're going to shift focus away from how ESG factors explicitly affect collateral cash flows to how they affect investment decisions, in this case among CLOs. This would be the G in ESG. To discuss this, we're going to bring on Lana DeHarving from our U.S. CLO group. Welcome to the podcast, Lana. Thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Lana. As environmental and social and governance issues become more and more important to structured finance investors, CLOs are increasingly incorporating ESG-focused investment guidelines. This is particularly true in Europe, where 85% of deals issued in 2020 and 2021 include ESG factors in their investment criteria. Can you talk a little about the impact these restrictions are having on deals we rate? Sure. So right now, current ESG investment restrictions aren't really affecting CLO's investment flexibility or performance. There are probably two main reasons for this. First, the ESG restrictions that we're seeing are mostly narrow in scope. 
meaning that they're limited to some very specific business activities, and those activities are often imprecisely defined. Second, the impact of these restrictions on investment flexibility is minimal because CLOs tend to only invest in these ESG-restricted industries to a limited extent. Okay, so right now, these restrictions don't have much bite. That's right. So to give you some color, all U.S. CLOs with ESG restrictions and about 60% of European CLOs we sampled only list the restricted activities, but they don't further define them. So for example, most CLOs will list, quote, ozone-depleting substances, but in contrast, some European CLOs will define the restriction by tying it to a definition in a regulation or protocol. So in Europe, ozone-depleting substances will be further defined as chemicals restricted by the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete ozone layer. Okay, so... With the exception of one recent European CLO, where the obligor's involvement in certain activities would make their debt ineligible, I don't think the transactions we rate exclude a business segment or activity in general from its investments, does it? That's right. So the restricted activity must be the borrower's principal business activity in order for it to be an ineligible investment. But back in 2018 and 2019, European deals had defined a principal business activity as accounting for more than 50% of the revenue. But now, most deals don't specify what constitutes a principal business activity, which leaves the issue open to interpretation. So all of these factors combined actually water down the restrictions' ultimate impact on CELO's investment activity. So could you give us a rundown of some of the most commonly restricted industries? Sure. So fossil fuels and weapons are by far the most common in both the U.S. and Europe. Other commonly restricted industries include pornography, tobacco, predatory payday, and subprime lending, and hazardous chemicals. But in the silos that do hold them, all of these exposures are already small, right? That's right. So as I mentioned earlier... The current exclusions target industries in which CLOs typically have only limited exposures. So loans to companies and industries subject to ESG restrictions are only a small share of the assets that CLOs typically purchase, averaging 3.7% of European CLO collateral and 3.6% of U.S. CLO collateral. Got it. So among actual collateral that CLOs invest in, what are some of the industries that include companies subject to ESG restrictions? So both U.S. and European CLOs have between 1% to 2% exposures to hotel gaming and leisure and chemicals and plastics. Everything else is less than 1% of collateral. And just to be clear, only a small fraction of the companies in those industries participate in restricted activities. So it seems these investment restrictions aren't affecting CLO collateral composition very much. But is that translating to collateral quality and performance metrics as well? Yes, it is. So among the deals that we sampled, performance is comparable between CLOs with and without ESG investment criteria. There are no significant differences in diversity scores, WARFs, CAA exposures, or defaults. Do we think that will change? Should criteria become more restrictive in the future? In the short term, yes, we do think so. A broader exclusion would likely reduce portfolio diversification as long as ESG-compliant collateral remains scarce. More stringent criteria would also increase industry concentration and therefore correlation risk and reduce over-collateralization levels through higher purchase prices. Over the longer term, 
Would you think the supply of ESG-friendly collateral would grow along with the importance of ESG considerations? Yes, exactly. So not only will investor demand continue to drive the inclusion of ESG criteria in CLOs, but regulatory efforts globally will also advance the progress of ESG considerations. In both the U.S. and Europe, there's a broad range of regulatory initiatives underway to standardize and enhance disclosure of ESG-related information. So what do these regulatory efforts mean for CLOs? So these initiatives will likely lead to greater clarity and overall transparency. The overall ESG approach in CLOs will evolve from the current negative screening with restrictions on certain investments towards proactively selecting assets, taking ESG factors into consideration. So in short, CLO ESG investment criteria are really still getting started. And we expect evolutions in the year to come. That's right. This has been great, Lana. A lot of good stuff for our listeners to consider. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I could join. Thanks to our listeners for joining us once again on Securitization Spotlight. And we hope to have you back in May. Take care, all. <laughs>